Hi, I'm Amy Halpern-Laugh. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Ellen McHugh. Ellen is Regional Program Manager and Regional Coordinator for Parent to Parent of New York State. She's also co-chair of the Citywide Council on Special Education. She's the parent of a profoundly deaf son and has been a parent advocate for children with special needs for over 30 years. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you very much, John. It's very nice of you. Ellen, what is Parent to Parent? Parent to Parent is a statewide network of parents of children with special needs. A broad array. My son happens to be deaf. Others have children with autism, with cerebral palsy, with intellectual disabilities or developmental delays, and other more esoteric issues. We provide information and resources to families by telephone, by e-group, by webpage, by hook or by crook, and um, hope that we can provide matches, meaning that someone in Buffalo who has a child with a developmental disability and is 18 years old wants to talk to somebody who has a child in a similar situation. And the person we have is in Schenectady or on Long Island. You know, some of the more difficult disabilities to match take a little bit longer. And we're part of a national network, parent to parent in the United States. And there are, I think, now about 38 states with parent to parent affiliates, including Alaska and Hawaii. Normally, we meet every two years, this being the second year we're not meeting. We may do a virtual meeting, but everybody's scrambling as fast as they can. I just want to remind everybody that these are my own opinions. They don't represent the opinion of parent to parent of New York State or of the Citywide Council on Special Education. Ellen, one of your opinions is that educators too often use a deficit model in thinking about a child with a disability. What do you mean by that? Well, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act requires you to recognize deficit either in speech, language, acquiring knowledge, walking, talking, self-skills. So the mindset has become, let us check and see what he can't do or what she can't do so that we can justify the provision of services. It's almost a, you have to fail before I can help you approach. It was very much like that in the beginning, but parent activism and also teacher activism, therapy, therapists who are more woke, to use a current phrase, advocated with the federal government to change that deficit model so that you didn't have to fail to get services, but you still have to qualify to get services, and that means that you have a problem seeing, speaking, hearing, walking, talking, or self-care, and it affects your ability to learn. It's a long way around of saying the, uh, the history has always been what can't you do instead of what can you do. It's going to take a generation, says me, to change that. And I think people are at that point where they're realizing you can't spend your life in a deficit model. Ellen, how does that impact how these students are taught? Well, the 
there's supposed to be modifications and adaptations made to every student's curriculum to allow him or her to learn at his or her own pace and in his or her own abilities, within their abilities. So taking a, a, my son as a, an example, he had a five to seven year language delay. The most important thing for him to be considered age appropriate or on grade level was to bring up his language. But at the same time, his disability, because that's what it is, it's a disability under the law, prevented him from acquiring language like other kids did. So you have this sometimes odd balancing act that you have to do. You have to recognize that the child is at deficit level. You also have to, in my opinion, believe that the child can be raised to his or her age-appropriate language level in his way. So the hard part was to keep working on both sides, addressing the deficit and honoring the growth or strength or change, however you want to say it. But you were still looking at assessments and evaluations at the end of the year that were based on what a typical age-appropriate child requires. So the comparison existed, even if, and he did make great progress, even if he did progress, he was still a year behind. Maybe as he grew older, especially at high school when language becomes even more complex and difficult for kids to use or understand, um, maybe two years behind the balance of honoring what the growth is and respecting the need is it's hard to it's hard to describe but it's also the crux of the matter as far as i'm concerned you said that beyond this focusing on the specific disability that too often educators don't look at what else a child can do what what they're like as a as a whole person that it sometimes becomes that the disability defines the child. Sure. Large bureaucracies, in order to make things shorter, so you don't have to say, oh, that child who has a severe profound bilateral sensory neural hearing loss says, oh, that's the deaf kid, or that's the SPED, short for special education. For a long time, I didn't, and I have good hearing, for a long time, I thought they were saying, that's the SPUD. It's like, what are you talking about? You know, just for clarity's sake, my full name is Eleonora Bridget O'Shea McHugh. You know, one of the things that people often associate with an Eleonora Bridget O'Shea McHugh is a potato, otherwise known as a spud. And I was like, I hope that's not where you're going. But, you know, the, this is, it's an easy way to type, to slot to align, to put into a box, if that's what you want to call it. It's not very fluid. Yes, he is deaf and will continue to be deaf all his life unless he's struck by lightning and a miracle occurs. But he also had other talents. He was very capable as an athlete. I mean, really. Even, you know, parents happen to be easily impressed by their kids' skills but he was recruited for the New York State Games. He was recruited for one or two colleges because of his baseball. The, the ball would just hop off the bat. You could see it. 
time. That was a talent that he had that allowed him to enter into the social world that was high school. Kids knew him in two ways, that he was the deaf kid, which you couldn't ignore that, but he was the deaf kid who played baseball. He was the deaf kid who had three letters. So he lettered in baseball, soccer, and in basketball. And I have to tell you, Rourke is short. Rourke is five foot seven. So lettering in basketball was a very big surprise to all of us. But anyway, he, the kids knew him in a different way. The other thing the kids knew was that he could draw. He did great caricatures. He still does them for his own amusement, not for anything else. So he was the deaf kid who was in my English class who played baseball and could draw. There were four layers to this child. To the person who provided therapy, and I am not looking to say they were mean or cruel, but to the person who provided the speech and language therapy, he was the deaf kid. You've described lack of respect given to parents as a big problem. Can you elaborate? It's a double-edged sword. There are times when you go for, especially in the beginning, you're still sort of dealing with the shock or the loss of goal, the loss of aims and hopes. To, you know, someone's told you either at birth or later on, there's something wrong. They haven't said there's something right. They've said there's something wrong. He doesn't hear. He doesn't walk. He's developmentally delayed. She has a Down syndrome. And there is this expectation that you know what that means when the baby is handed to you. You don't. So rather than trying to explain it to you, because the people in hospitals or at therapy sites, they all have their own approach to how to work with the family or how to draw a family out, we'll say, here's your deaf child. What do you think we should do? Which is really nice in one end, but at the other end, it's like, I don't know. I've never had a deaf person in my family. So then they say, well, you know, have you ever found out about this disability? And you go back to your parents. My parents were immigrants. And I said to them, you know, Ma, Pa, anybody deaf in the family? And my father said, no, but you, you know, you had an uncle who got hit in the head when he was little. He was a little different. Daddy, that's not what I wanted to know. But my mother-in-law said to me, you know, John, that's my husband. He always had terrible ear problems when he was a kid. We were always taking him to the doctor. No, this is, you know, this is not, this is not an ear problem. It's not a knock in the head. It's a, it's a permanent issue. So you have that juxtaposition. People expect that you're going to find out why your child is developmentally delayed. Did anybody in the family have Down syndrome? Did other people have children with special needs? It opens up any number of you could say avenues to explore your history, but you could also say wounds. You get into early intervention, you get into the Committee on Preschool Special Education, you get into the Special Education Committee. Everybody has the same question. Could you tell us, Mrs. McHugh, what happened? Could you tell us, Mrs. McHugh, what happened? By the third go-round, I was like, no, it's right there. It's in the paperwork. Well, Mrs. McHugh, what do you do at home? Well, at home, we do things we do at home. You know, we try and develop his language. We try and get him to use 
his medial K's and his final S's. We learn the lingo of developing language, but we don't necessarily learn the lingo of getting people to respect us because when you still walk into that room, whether you're discussing the medical issue or the education issue, there's six, eight, 10 people there. Everybody's got a title. Everybody's a doctor or a therapist or a speech and language person or the IEP teacher or the specialist in this and the specialist in that. Everybody's got tons of paper in front of them, piles this big by the time you're in high school and everyone still looks at the parent and says, hello, mother. I'm not your mother. I don't want to deal with the issues you had with your mother. You can call me Ellen. You can call me Hey You. You can call me the Wicked Witch of the West. You can call me Mrs. McHugh. But please have the courtesy to ask me how I want to be addressed. This especially works out poorly in communities of immigrants. Many people come here and the only thing they have is their Mr. or Mrs. You know, it's really not appropriate to call somebody Poppy or Mommy. Better to call them by their names. And then ask them for information. What does your child like? How does your child interact with other children? What do you think would be beneficial to work with your child? Does your child like colors? Does your child like music? How do you get to your child when your child is craving attention from you, and not just food, and not just pretzels. <laughs> what do you do with your child? What do you know about your child? What can you tell us your child does? It's not often that those questions are asked. The process is you sit down, people introduce themselves, and somebody reads the psychological, somebody reads the educational, somebody reads the uh, speech and language, somebody talks to you about OT and PT. Do you understand? By this time, of course, it's like um, Charlie Brown's teacher. All you can hear is wah, 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 because the first words out of everybody's mouth are, we're here to discuss your child who has a long list of deficits. That's a long way, I guess, of saying, even though the IDEA insists that the parent be a full and equal participant, in the creation of the IEP and the selection of placement and program, and that the Department of Ed, whether it's in New York, New Jersey, or California, is required to give you the information to help you make an informed decision. There's no, I guess, peaceful way to say this, except to say that it's an information dump, and you're expected to plow through it on the spot right there while you're discussing something that's going to impact your child for the next 10 months. So these relationships were already strained. How has the shift to remote learning because of the pandemic affected the relationships between teachers and parents and, and also the students? Oddly enough, there's been a realization about how hard teachers work with students and how hard parents work with students. There's been a recognition on both sides that being one-to-one -one in front of the computer, especially for some children who are taught or require assistance, has created um, 
conversation between the family member and the therapist. When the therapist says, you know, I need you to put your hand over his hand, or when the therapist says, I need you to use manipulatives, do you have blocks in the house? Or when the therapist says to you and to the child, boy, that was great. You got your medial Ks and your final S's out. How are we going to do this so that you can say the word truck? And when you're not in therapy, it's also been difficult for those kids who are little. The little ones really can't spend their time focused like that. It's, it's hard enough when you're an adult, but now you're three or five, maybe even seven, and you're looking at a screen and it's really not moving. <laughs> it's not anything like you expect. It's somebody talking to you. You ever remember the, there was an old TV show called Max Headroom. It was just a head that would pop up and talk. And that's kind of what happens, not all the time. I think that the teachers, the staff have made great strides in personalizing things, things they never thought they could do. Most staff would never really be interested in assistive technology when they had a class of 26 kids. Now you talk assistive technology and everybody wants to know what are you using? Are you using an iPad? What device are you using? Do you like Samsung or do you like Google Classrooms? People are much more aware of what assistive technology can and should do. Even with children who are, have dyslexia, enlarging the letters on the screen and creating different setups for paragraphs is so much easier when you can do it on a computer and keep it instead of having to do it individually every time so that the child can concentrate on the words or there isn't so much distraction. One of the classic things about dyslexia, supposedly, and I'm not a, an expert, it's better for a dyslexic child to have a light blue background and a black letters rather than black and white because black letters sometimes look like chicken scratch. This is, you know, an old, an old example, but it's still an example of how you can take a look and adapt the background of a piece of paper or the color on the piece of paper so that the child can concentrate more than he or she would before or adapt math examples. You know, it's a whole lot easier for a child to just calculate to look at a math example on a computer, see the lines, see the way things should lay out. No, so when you're writing it yourself and you're dysgraphic, you're all over the sheet of paper. It's not a cure, but it certainly has allowed people to be much more flexible about assistive technology. By law, Students with special ed needs have individual education programs, or IEPs, which outline the goals for the student during the year and the special support the student will receive in order to achieve them. With schools being remote, many of the services for children with special needs have been modified, and the document describing these modifications is called a program adaptation document. What should parents do when they receive one? The first thing they should do 
before they even receive one, is recognize that they're going to have concerns because on each IEP is an area for parent concerns and it must be filled in is the worst phrase I can think of, but there must be a question asked of the parent. What are your concerns? And those concerns must be listed on the IEP. So I get out my IEP and I look at the program adaptations document and I check, am I getting an ICT class. What's the class size ratio? Ellen, what's an ICT class? Sorry, an integrated co-teaching class. So an integrated co-teaching class is made up of 60% of the students on a grade who are general ed and 40% of the students on a grade who have IEPs. In front of the classroom are two teachers, one licensed in K to seven or six to 12, but a licensed teacher and one licensed in special education. The thought is that the two of them can work together to address both groups in the class because a special education teacher might have a trick of her sleeve that she could use to help the general ed teacher or the special education teacher may not know the curriculum, but the general education does so you can you have to live in each other's pockets. It's the only way to say it. With class size ratios though, you know, there are no limits after eighth grade, seventh grade, I believe. There's really no class size limit, except that which is required by union contract. So you can have a class of 35, 36, 37 students. And you would have that class size ratio of 60-40. Wow. The benefit is that research has shown that for both types of students, special education and general education, special education kids are exposed to age-appropriate curricula, age-appropriate language, age-appropriate social interactions. And general education kids can benefit at times from the, for lack of a better phrase, trick that the teacher knows about how to elicit language or how to improve math or how to adjust a paragraph so that a child who doesn't have a good language background can understand what's in the paragraph. Are you an oral learner? Are you a visual learner? Are you a kinesthetic learner? All of this is part and parcel of what the two teachers help to address. It's not a cure-all by any means, because you still need specific techniques to reach, say, a, a child who's deaf, you know, or a child who's blind, and you still need experience. So I was going to say thank you for that explanation, because it's like really important and gives people the kind of background they need. But you were starting to say about the ICT, because you were saying that when a parent is looking at the what's proposed in terms of the program adaptation, and you go back to looking at the IEP to see what concerns you have, because for example, you might be supposed to be getting an ICT class. So can you pick it up from there? What would happen when the parent is looking at the IEP and then looking at the proposed adaptation? In this instance now, the parent would really be like a detective, because if they've chosen blended learning, two days in, three days out, 
that have to take a pretty hard look at how that ICT class or any other, whether it's a small group class called self-contained or just a general education class, would address the child's related services as well as the education piece. So are you going to get in-person related services or is it going to be remote related services? Your IEP calls for five days a week of speech and language. You're not going to be in person five days a week. How is that speech and language going to be delivered on the other three days when you're in remote? The DOE has been struggling at this point now because when you break down these classes so that you can do the social distancing, if you have an average class size of 26 to 28 children, say at the third grade, and families have opted both for blended and remote, you have to sit down and figure out where are we going to seat these children? We've got to do our six feet. Where are we going to provide these children their related services? Is it in a separate room? Is it in the room with everybody else? If you provide the related services in the room with everybody else, does that bump up the number? So you can't have more than 11 children, 11 people in a classroom. You've got a teacher and you've got 10 children. The related service provider comes in. Now you've got 12 people in the room. Does that change the ratio? Does that change the exposure? Does that change your way of working with the children? Because now you have this extra body in the room. And when do you have this extra body in the room? So say you've got, like I said, 10 kids. Three of them get different related services. One gets OT, one gets PT, one gets speech and language. Are those OT, PT, speech and language people going to be in the classroom at the same time delivering in-class services? Is the child going to be taken out of the classroom to walk down the hall to go to another room where he or she would receive the services either one-to-one -one or in a small group? You only have to be very trusting, and I believe that most people do trust, and I believe that most people are doing the best they can. But if you can, you look at your IEP, you look at the remote learning plan, or the PAD as they're calling it now, and ask to walk through the building. Make an appointment. Say, I need to see where my son or my daughter is going to sit. I need to see where my son or my daughter is going to have related services. Well, you know, Mrs. McHugh, he's only going to be there two days a week. I know that, but I still need to see it. It's almost kinesthetic learning. I need to see it, feel it, touch it, know it, because this is my child who we have all agreed needs specialized services. The law says I'm a full and equal participant in the development of the IEP and the selection of placement and program. I need to make an informed decision. I need to trust you as well as you need to trust me that I am a full and equal participant in this. I know I'm beating a dead horse by using the full and equal participant lingo, but that's in the law. People should know it. So let's say the teacher will send a parent a proposed PAD, and then the parent may have concerns and will say, I'm concerned about this, or I want to see the classroom, or I want this, or I want that. So then what happens then? Does the, am I correct that the system, if you will, 
must have the parents' agreement in order to implement this, or if there's a disagreement, then it can go to a you know impartial hearing and so forth. But basically, that it cannot be implemented without the parents' ultimate consent. Is that is that accurate? Parent consent is usually given the first go round, right? So the child is identified at four, and a parent signs a consent form for evaluation and assessment. And then the parent signs another document, the IEP, when he or she agrees with the education program that has been laid out. If there is a major change, a drop in service, a drop in services, a drop in placement, a change in placement, going from a typical class to a small self-contained class, all of that requires the parent to come in and agree. And so that would apply to the PAD as well? To my mind, yes. And to most people who are doing advocacy work, yes. Because the way the DOE has set some of these things out is always aligned or as best as we can or as circumstances permit or as resources allow. So what the DOE and all the DOEs are, not not just New York City, all of them are running up against a shortage of providers, a shortage of staff, a shortage of paraprofessionals that are in some classes are mandated. You're looking at working two days at the school, full time, and three days at home. The school teachers in the school don't necessarily have the flexibility to do the remote learning because you're in group A, group A goes in Monday, Tuesday, they have teacher D and E. Teacher D and E then have another group, group B, on Wednesdays and Thursdays. They have to be with that group so they can't be the same people providing the remote learning. And I don't know that this is a resolution. In some states, they have put in wide lens cameras so that the teacher is always on camera all five days that he or she is in the classroom. And when the kids go home, they just turn on the camera on their computer and it's as if they were sitting at home watching. In New York City, to the best of my knowledge, they are not doing that. Rumor has said it's because of contractual issues or parents don't want their children to be on a camera. It's intrusive or there's privacy or it's just too darn expensive. We are the largest system in in the States. I don't know if it's in the world, but certainly in the States. So you're going to to have someone who is doing the remote learning three days a week. And that someone has a lot to handle, which it looks like, although I think that the DOE might try to address it, that that someone will be the only one doing remote. And remote is hard. You don't get the reaction. You don't necessarily see the face. You know, staff had a very quick and very, you know, hard learning experience you know they got put on the horse and told to ride it a lot of staff took off over the summer which is not a bad thing either so now they're coming back and having to look at their skills again look at their co-workers for some hints i guess would be a better way to put it you know and 
they're all under tremendous pressure to do, to perform, to be as similar as they can be if this was not a middle of pandemic. And it's a hard thing to do no matter what. And now you're talking about 1.1 million children I don't know. I, I've heard 84,000 staff members, but I don't know if that's right. So in addition to giving parents the information that they need to make informed decisions about their children's education, what kinds of supports would you like teachers to give parents during the pandemic? Me? I wanted the teachers to only teach four days a week and to spend one day a week with the families. That was my suggestion. You know, Everybody looked at me cross-eyed, but I think now people are beginning to realize this because their experience teaching via remote learning and having to work with the families. Because, you know, God bless it, I know my kids, I would have had to drag them over and nail them into a chair if they were home. <laughs> because, you know, you're home, you're distracted by everything. I work from home and it's still easy, easy to be distracted. You have to say, no, I'm not going to do the laundry. No, I'm not going to make the sandwich. Now you've got kids, and they don't even have the theoretical control that I, as an adult, are supposed to exert. So that was my thought, that the teachers should teach for four days and work with the families on the fifth day. That makes a lot of sense. I, you know, I thought it did, and of course... There were a couple of people at the union that did, but most of them were like, are you nuts? They'll <laughs> so, never let us do that. So New York City Department of Ed has a separate school district called District 75 that serves students with severe disabilities from all over the city. It includes some school buildings and then some sites that are co-located in buildings with other schools. What structures, if any, are in place for collaboration? between co-located sites and the other schools in the buildings? Goodwill is usually the structure. There are 59, I believe, self-contained District 75 buildings, and over, well, depending on who you talk to, it's anywhere between 320 and 350 off-sites. So an off-site can be as few as five classes and as many as 10 or 12, you know, depending on where they're located, how big the building is, what type of special needs are there. But principals are only required to have a building team if there are three or more schools in the building or if a general ed building and a charter school are located in the same building. So, if a general ed school and a District 75 school are located in the same building, there's no requirement for those principals to talk to each other. There's no requirement for those principals. There's the generic ethical requirement to plan because you don't, you want to be able to use the gym collaboratively, the library, the lunchroom, other classrooms, the art room should it exist. But there comes to us, the Citywide Council on Special Ed, what comes back is the struggle to program. And granted, the struggle to program is really based on numbers. How many, if you've got 1,700 children in a building and 10 classes of kids with special needs, so maybe 120, 
you're looking at a lot of kits to handle, to get in and out of buildings, to give lunch, and to provide with all of the other things that make school a school, after school programs, uh, plays, assemblies, fundraisers, PTAs. The unfortunate part is because it's considered a separate district, there are two funneled lines. So you're a child in PS, yada, 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 and you have a speech delay. You get speech and language from a district supplied person. You're a child in District 75, you have a speech delay, you get a speech and language from a District 75 supplied person. Neither person can cross that divide. So say you were short a speech-to-language person for three weeks. The District 75 person can't handle the district-based person. The district-based person can't handle the District 75 person. I think it's a tremendous waste of resources. And it's, it's a divide that then spreads itself throughout the school. Those kids are on the fourth floor. Those kids are on the second floor. Those kids are downstairs. Those kids... They don't have lunch with us. A classic example is Stuyvesant High School for all of the yelling. They have a small District 75 program in there. They also have an accessible pool. The kids in District 75 have never been in the accessible pool, even though one or two of them were there and could use wheelchairs. 993 is located at Frank Sinatra. They did not want to give the students for District 75 students, a Frank Sinatra diploma, because after all, they weren't our students. In another school, they didn't want to allow children who were able to participate in a sports team to participate in the sports team, because after all, they weren't our children. It's an unfortunate division created artificially by funding. And I understand what District 75 people mean when they say we have tremendous talent and we need to make sure that our children are well educated. So we need the control of our funding so that we can have, we can plug a hole here or provide something there. But at the other end of it is, there's no, for lack of a better word, cross-pollination. And mm -hmm. Folks in District 75 have some tricks of the trade that they could certainly give to the general ed teacher and the general education teacher in PS yada 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 could certainly expose uh, folks in District 75 to the standard curriculum, even if it has to be very dramatically adapted for the District 75 child who's reading at a first grade level, it's still not a bad idea to expose them. Wow. I understand the funding issues, but I still can't imagine what that looks like, the message that that gives to children, you know, when they're segregated in that way. The kids will tell you, no, I'm not one of them. That's not my school. I, I'm just going to use the number because it comes to mind. I'm at 993 there at Frank Sinatra. We're different. How do you cross that boundary without having some kind of school planning team, school cooperative team, principals talking to each other, a more proactive co-planning? And I know I sound like I'm wearing rose-colored glasses, 
But maybe this pandemic has forced people to look at how they can cross those divides and how they have to plan, how they have to be different than they were before. Ellen, what would that proactive planning look like? Well, just use of the schoolyard. So, okay, you know, there are classic examples. The kids from District 75 are on a different bell schedule. So they have to be in school at, I'm just picking hours, at 8.10. The general ed kids don't have to be in school until 8.30. So the general ed kids are playing in the schoolyard for the most part. You know, they get to school a little earlier. Why is it that District 75 kids have to be led into classrooms? Why can't the bell schedule be the same? Principals say, and I understand what they're talking about, when you've got big schools, you've got 400, 600 kids coming into a building, that you have to use all your entrances. But why is it only the District 75 kids go in that entrance? Well, you know, they use wheelchairs. Yeah, well, you know, people stand on the corner at the curb cut and see somebody use a wheelchair. Didn't they step on them then? <laughs> well, they're blind. They, they could trip and fall. Children trip and fall all the time. <laughs> you know, the one place for kids to get to know each other is usually on the play yard or the playground, however you want to describe it. The other thing is probably lunch. Granted, you would not want to overcrowd your lunchroom. But at the same time, there's absolutely no reason why you can't have a mix of kids together. We talk about diversity and we talk about respect for all and we talk about excellence for all. And you forget that that disability is a diversity. And I'm not looking to be trite, believe me. But disability is part of the diversity issue here. So you don't hear like other people do, or you don't read like other people do. Why do you have to go in a separate door? Or why do you have to be on a separate class schedule? There's still stories in the paper about, oh, well, PS yada, yada, yada had a, a school fair, but the District 75 kids weren't allowed to attend. Or have gifted and talented programs. In my own home district is a, a building that's all gifted and talented kids. When they decided that they were going to include some kids from District 75, the, the building went berserk. Staff, parents, principals, they're going to pull down our scores. They're not going to be part of our community. They don't come from our community. They're going to be bust in here. It was a junior high school. Everybody was being busted. Not everybody came from the community, and not everybody had the same reading and math level either. So people had to say to them, oh, no, no, District 75 kids are not included in reading and math scores because they can't do it. You know, it was like, a, it was like somebody hit you in the stomach. So, I mean, a lot of what you're describing in terms of this sort of resistance to students with IEPs being included as one of our kids rather than one of their kids, just is unethical. What kinds of things, I mean, you've mentioned some specifics, but what would be some of the things that the Department of Ed, and for that matter, 
teachers and school people in individual schools and parents, what can people be doing that would lead to more ethical treatment of students with disabilities and their families? What are some of the things that you'd recommend? Lay down your prejudices, lay down your arms, lay down your pencils, and look up and see these kids that come in the door. About uh, eight years ago, the feds came down on New York City very hard for the number of kids that were in self-contained classes in districts, not only District 75, but in districts. So something called a new pathways to success was developed to integrate children who are IEPs into typical school buildings. In some buildings, people actually said, well, what the hey? Let's give it a go, you know. In other buildings, the, the reaction on the part of staff and community was, no, 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 they don't belong here. Part of the problem was there wasn't an explanation. When it was first implemented, it was only supposed to be kindergarten and first grade, sixth grade and junior high school, ninth grade and high school. But nobody communicated that effectively with the schools. So entire schools thought that they were going to have to develop integrated co-teaching classes on every level by September X. And that's not what it was. It was the entry classes, the entry level classes were being worked on to include or integrate however you want to call it. So now we're about nine or 10 years into it. One of the positives that has occurred is an increase in reading levels, and an increase in graduation. They are nowhere near where they should be, but there has been a noticeable increase in reading and math scores and in graduation. But, you know, the other end of that argument is if they're still below grade level or still below average, what are we doing to raise those things? And I think this is my opinion. People had become complacent and again, I'm going to say this, this virus may have shaken people right down to their very toes and forced them to look at different ways to educate all children. I hope, it's my belief, most people are ethical. Sometimes they get lost. And other times, you know, this is the, the system, huge bureaucracies just move along. They, people at this level say great things and somebody who's teaching a second grade class who hasn't gotten the resources and hasn't seen a supervisor for a support service in three weeks hasn't got the heart for all of the big words that people are using at the top level when she's seeing children you know, struggling or working as hard as they can and she knowing that she's doing her best, but she hasn't cracked the code, feeling frustrated. So there's tremendous lack of communication in the middle. And part of that lack of communication in the middle is the way bureaucracies roll out their latest platform or their latest innovation. They roll it out in paper. They don't roll it out in discussion. People at the top, create teams, they bring in their best, they sit down, they develop this, they're really pleased, and sometimes it is pleasing. And then they roll it out in paper and they hand it out. 
the principal says, oh, good grief. I've got another, they want me to change math again. Or says to the teacher, the way you were having everybody sit and read on the rug, we're not going to do that anymore. No, um, we're not going to do rugs. We're going to do frogs. I'm being facetious, but they roll out paper. And it's well-intended. But the people who are developing this paper are talking to themselves and they are saying the same thing to each other. And after a while, it rings a bell and it sounds so good. (laughs) But you still haven't said to Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so in the second grade, what do you think? What do you know? (laughs) What would you do? You know, oh, well, we want this child to have an integrated co-teaching class and you can do this. Integrated co-teaching with age-appropriate peers, having age-appropriate social experiences, exposed to an age-appropriate curriculum, and uh, learning age-appropriate language. And if I was a teacher, I'd look at them and say, heavens, what do you think I have been doing? I might say it in a less common what do you think I've been doing here? Well, we certainly hope that the disruptions caused by the pandemic will lead to some more real listening. Perhaps the administrators will start listening to teachers and teachers will start listening to parents and perhaps we all can start listening to students. Thank you so much, Ellen McHugh of Parent to Parent. Thank you very much for being so patient and listening to me yap and rant. This is almost cathartic after all these And thank you, listeners. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps other people to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles, and subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City area. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denti. Until next week.